Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to a special recording of Cold Steel. In an effort to deliver creative and innovative content, we're excited to bring you a mock oral examination. Not to worry, no resident was hurt during the creation of this podcast, but my co-host Amir Farouk was kind enough to act as a guinea pig and be the examinee. So thanks to Amir for his continued bravery and mental toughness. I'd like to invite you to listen to the next wonder of the world. An extravaganza so remarkable it'll leave you breathless. You'll laugh, you'll cry, but you won't forget. Our examiners today may not be household names quite yet, but they are destined for big things. In the left corner, wearing red today, and an undisclosed weight, is Caitlin the Assassin Cahill. Caitlin grew up in Montreal and completed her undergrad at McGill. She eventually went on to residency in Ottawa and is now enjoying her first year of a colorectal fellowship. This has given her ample opportunity to develop a planned attack towards our examinee today. In the right corner, wearing red as well, and weighing it as a chiseled and pharmacologically enhanced 222 pounds, is your second examiner, Dr. Greg the Hammer Knapp. The Hammer grew up on the mean streets of Grimsby, Ontario. He barely escaped, but eventually made it to McMaster for medical school and Dalhousie for surgical residency. He worked for a year and is now a star surgical oncology fellow. Greg has been plotting a rebuttal for Amir since their incident known as the pickle problem. As best said by Apollo Creed in the final scene of Rocky III, ding, ding. Um, okay, so you have a um, <clears throat> 47-year-old male. He's previously healthy, and he presents to the emergency department with a 14-hour history of severe epigastric pain and vomiting. His temperature is 38.2, heart rate 140, blood pressure 97 over 68, and SATs are 96% on room air. In the eMERGE, he gets two liters of Ringer's lactate, and some basic labs are drawn. His white count is 19. Hemoglobin 155, bilirubin is 34, ALTAST are around 100, and lipase is 17,000. A CT scan shows a calcified gallstone in the gallbladder, a 4-millimeter common bile duct, moderate abdominal ascites, marked peripancreatic inflammation, and necrosis of the entire pancreatic body, which is 80% of the gland. How will you manage this patient and discuss the role for antibiotics? So this is a 47-year-old male who's presenting with a severe acute uh, necrotizing pancreatitis uh, with, of gallstone origin. This patient needs to be uh, treated with uh, uh, supportive therapy, uh, and uh, this patient appears to be uh, potentially uh, at high risk of getting quite ill. Um, so I would consider admitting this patient to the intensive care unit if I felt that uh, the patient's trajectory uh, was uh, that it, that uh, on, a, on a worsening course. Otherwise, I would uh, uh, continue with fluid resuscitation of this patient um, as well as uh, uh, good pain control. Uh, I would uh, attempt to establish uh, nutritional access uh, for this patient, uh, either orally via NG or uh, nasoduodenal or nasojejunal feeding. Uh, and uh, finally, in terms of antibiotics, I would uh, not uh, start this patient on uh, antibiotics uh, unless they developed obvious uh, air in the gland uh, or had some other uh, feature to suggest uh, uh, an infection or 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 if they continue to worsen uh, in the intensive care unit, uh, then I might reconsider antibiotics, but I would not give them antibiotics at this point. Okay. So the patient is admitted to the general surgery ward. Despite significant IV fluid administration, four hours later, his heart rate is still 120. His urine output is 10 to 15 cc's an hour. His abdomen is progressively distended and the patient is confused and agitated. He now requires four liters of oxygen by nasal prong and is desaturating to 88%. His temperature is 38.6.
What is your management now? So uh, this patient is uh, continuing to deteriorate on the general surgery ward, um, and uh, he he likes likely needs more intensive monitoring in the form of uh, ICU care, um, and so I would uh, consult my ICU colleagues <clears throat> for uh, admission in the uh, intensive care unit. Uh, and uh, monitor his uh, urine uh, output uh, closely and uh, particularly monitor for uh, abdominal compartment syndrome. Okay. So the patient is transferred to the ICU. Within two hours of being there, he is intubated. A chest x-ray shows a left pleural effusion. His saturation improves on AC ventilation with a PEEP of 10 and FiO2 of 60%. How would you advise the ICU to manage his nutrition? Um, so uh, these patients can be fed orally. I would uh, ask the, the ICU to continue to feed this patient uh, with uh, NG feeds. And if he doesn't tolerate that, then uh, ask them to uh, uh, get uh, our radiology colleagues to, to uh, put the tube further down, either into the duodenum or into the jejunum and conti uh, continue with enteral feeds in that form. So his abdomen remains distended with no stool per rectum. His bladder pressure is 22 millimeters of mercury. Abdominal x-ray shows a distended stomach, distended small bowel. There's a small amount of air in the left colon. His peak respiratory pressures have not increased over the course of the day. Urine output remains poor at 10 cc's per hour. Discuss the diagnosis and management of abdominal compartment syndrome. So, uh... The abdominal compartment syndrome is a constellation of uh, findings um, that uh, are manifestations of increased intra-abdominal pressure. These include renal failure and uh, respiratory failure, um, as well as potentially uh, intra-abdominal um, ischemia. Um, so these would be manifested in, in the forms of an increase in creatinine, uh, poor urine output, as well as increasing uh, 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 ventilatory pressures. Uh, another potential marker of this is uh, uh, bladder pressures uh, over 20. So certainly this patient has some features of uh, abdominal compartment syndrome. However, um, I don't know what the uh, creatinine is, and the respiratory pressures have also not increased over the course of the day. Um, I, to manage abdominal compartment syndrome, I would consider uh, first adjunctive therapy, such as uh, paralyzing the patient. Um, and, but ultimately, if, uh, if the patient continued to have compartment syndrome, uh, the ultimate management would be uh, decompressive laparotomy. So over the course of the next seven days, uh, the patient improves. He is awake, alert, and weaning off of the ventilator. NJ feeds are going well, and his labs are normalizing. On post-admission day 10, his heart rate jumps to 115. His temperature is 39.5, and his white blood cell count goes from 14 to 22. What would you like to do? So given that there is a change in the patient's uh, 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 picture, I would... Um, repeat this patient's uh, CT scan to see if there's been any change uh, after sorry after repeating a history and physical exam uh, to uh, see if there's any obvious uh, sources for uh, what looks like a, a septic picture so I uh, for, for example an infected line or skin rash I would repeat a CT scan so you get a CT abdomen and pelvis and there's a walled off fluid collection comprising the body of the pancreas posterior to the stomach there's rim enhancement effect and a few small collections of air in the fluid collections. What is the diagnosis and how will you manage this? So I would uh, consult, so this is a uh, peripancreatic um, uh, uh, fluid collection or walled or walled off um, uh, necrosum. Uh, 
I would uh, consult my uh, HBB colleagues for their suggestions uh, as well as review the images with my interventional radiology colleagues. Um, given that he has a fever as well as uh, collections of air, he, he might be a candidate for uh, a, a drain, uh, but certainly I would uh, have my uh, HBB colleagues uh, look at this as well and, and get their suggestions uh, prior to intervening as uh, it may affect further uh, interventions uh, down the road. Okay, so so what exactly do you want so to do? I, I would uh, drain these, this fluid collection. Okay, anything else? I would also potentially, I would also start this patient on antibiotics. Okay, what kind? Uh, I would use uh, IV miropenem. Okay. When would you recommend this patient undergo a cholecystectomy? Uh, this patient could go undergo a cholecystectomy uh, once they were uh, out of the, uh, what uh, once their nec necrotizing pancreatitis had uh, completely settled down. So uh, obviously I would wait for this patient to be out of the intensive care unit and be at home and I'd probably wait um, uh, two to three months prior to uh, recommending uh, a cholecystectomy uh, just to allow um, any ongoing inflammation from uh, the patient's pancreatitis to settle down. Okay, that's it. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. That was a good one. <laughs> um, so should I debrief? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, perfect. So, uh, so I think you did really well, like in terms of knowledge and content, no concerns at all. You answered everything pretty much perfectly. Um, so I just made a few notes here. Um, yeah, so in the beginning, uh, it's really good. So I think one of your strengths is that you're good at sort of summarizing the situation and, and kind of like, and I, and I think that's a, a form of you mentally uh, making sense of the story and everything in your head. So I think that's really good. But at the same time, just be careful to not be too wordy because you do lose some time. Um, and uh, like I didn't actually time this, but in the actual exam, the questions will be, you know, five or 10 minute questions. Um, and so you just don't want to lose time being a little too wordy. Um, so like, for example, when we got to the CT scan, I just sort of like moved you along because I knew you like you said what you wanted to do. But then you started going down a little bit of a rabbit hole of discussion as to why. And I was like, yeah, yeah I know. OK, good. <laughs> I just wanted you to say CT scan. Um, but no, that was really good. Uh, I really don't have too much to say otherwise. Um, I, I, I hope Dr. Ball didn't uh, uh, have a seizure listening to me talk about this uh, pancreatitis patient. <laughs> no, that that was good, Amira. I agree with, with Caitlin. Your, your style was good. Your flow was good. You didn't use a lot of extra words. Uh, you were pretty directed. It's an interesting question, though. You know, if you're an examinee and and you feel that the content of the question is a little bit off, and that can happen, I mean, that, the content in that particular question, you know, is a bit off. There's not in terms of in terms of purely what you should do. There there really is no scenario where you should intervene in that patient with percutaneous techniques or endoscopic techniques before 30 days. That patient's getting better. They don't need antibiotics. There's a whole bunch of nuance there that really will be limited to someone who does a lot of pancreatitis as a pancreas surgeon. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean the answers that you're that they're looking for are going to be correct. Yeah, so this is one of the things, Dr. Ball, like if you you know, if you look at Sabastins or whatever, they'll they'll talk about putting in a drain for someone who has air in a collection and fever. So I kind of knew that that's where this was going, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I know certainly looking at your you know the work that you put out that uh, that's not something that uh, I, I might well, do in real life you know I think the important point is not the individual uh, question or the or the nature of what might be off about it the important point is how you're going to address that mentally and then verbally in an exam question and I think it is okay to say um, you know a traditional dogma would say do this and then sort of deliver it like you like you have um, but if you're concerned you can also say, uh, but, you know, my experience on a high volume pancreatitis service, for example, would be um, this other alternative a pathway or approach, uh, which is 
reasonable as well. And I think just showing that sort of level of nuance, if it makes you feel better, answering the question is okay, as long as, as Caitlin says, you're, you're moving along quickly. Yeah, and we, we had that sort of teaching as well when we were preparing is, um, especially for subjects where there might be a little bit of institutional variation in how patients are managed. Uh, it's very reasonable to say at my institution, like this is how this would be managed or in my training, this is how I manage this patient for topics that you know there could be some difference in what the textbooks say to what is done in real life or even across the country because that's something that we found uh, at the review course was that different places manage things slightly different. Um, so I think, for example, in Calgary, I think you guys do some operative debridement through the stomach. Is that right? Like through the back wall of the stomach. Um, whereas I've never seen that in my life. Um, and, you know, the traditional kind of teaching is don't operate on these patients. So there's obviously variation in how things are managed. So I think that's fine to um, at least acknowledge that. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thanks, Caitlin. <clears throat> All right, Greg, I think you're up. So, Amir, I am going to time you. Okay, um, um, so we try to make this, if you do get a bit long-winded, then I'll either move <laughs> you along or you won't finish the station. Okay. Okay, so All right. here we go. So you see a 52-year-old uh, woman with a new mass in the right breast at the 12 o'clock position. She's got a BMI of 32, no past medical history to speak of, no relevant family history, uh, and no significant breast health history, no skin changes on exam, there's no obvious asymmetry, perhaps a bit of a fullness, Difficulty uh, to, it's difficult to palpate this lesion, uh, again, although maybe there's a fullness at the 12 o'clock position. Your axillary exam is negative, uh, and she is perimenopausal. Uh, she comes with a, with a diagnostic mammogram. She's got a 3.3 by 3.5 centimeter spiculated mass with internal calcifications. No other lesions in the breast. There's one enlarged lymph node, 1.2 centimeters, with 4 millimeters of cortical thickening that is suspicious. Uh, she is reported as a BIRADS 5. Core biopsy comes back in the breast as invasive ductal, grade two, ER positive, uh, PR negative, HER2 negative. Axillary node uh, is also positive for invasive ductal carcinoma. What is the next step in her management? So this is a 52-year-old uh, female with a new uh, breast cancer uh, and a positive axillary node. This patient should be um, sent to medical oncology for consideration of neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by either uh, uh, followed by surgical resection. Is there anything else that you would um, do at this time? I would also conduct a staging workup to uh, including a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis uh, to ensure there was no uh, other metastatic disease, uh, plus or minus an MRI if she had any um, uh, neurological symptoms. Any other staging investigations? Uh, I would do a CBC lights and creatinine, as well as an uh, LDH and a, a bone scan. So the patient has a CT, chest, abdominal, pelvis, uh, no evidence of metastatic disease. CBC is normal. Uh, LFTs, LCFOS are normal. Bone scan, no evidence of metastatic disease. So what would you recommend at this point? So I would recommend that this patient be sent uh, to medical oncology for consideration of uh, neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy because of the uh, positive uh, axillary node. So patient has a clip placed in the involved node. She received six cycles of FECD, uh, repeat diagnostic mammogram, uh, and ultrasound demonstrates uh, the primary breast lesion has responded, uh, three centimeters by 2.8, so it's still evident. Clipped axillary node um, is measured at uh, 0.8 centimeters with equivocal uh, cortical thickening. Your clinical exam is unchanged. Patient wishes to have breast-conserving surgery. What will you offer this patient? Uh, so given that this patient would like to have breast-conserving therapy, 
that would be appropriate in this uh, scenario. I would uh, offer the patient a wire localized uh, lumpectomy uh, and sentinel lymph node biopsy with uh, with uh, blue dye as well as uh, lymphocytography. So the patient has a lumpectomy plus sentinel lymph node biopsy with removal of the clip node. The final pathology is a T2N1 adenocarcinoma grade two uh, negative margins, LVI present. Two of three nodes are positive with three millimeters of disease, no extranodal extension. What would you offer, or would you offer this patient any additional treatment? And then what adjuvant treatment would you expect this patient to be offered? So, uh, although the, this patient uh, appears to only have T2N1, this is in the context of the patient having had new adjuvant chemotherapy. Given that she has not had a complete pathologic response, I would offer the patient a axillary lymph node dissection. Um, the alternative uh, would be to discuss this at a multidisciplinary, or sorry, I would discuss this at a, at a multidisciplinary tumor board meeting uh, for uh, any inputs from our radiation oncology colleagues as to whether axillary node dissection versus uh, axillary uh, radiation would be uh, best for this patient, uh, but I would offer this patient axillary lymph node dissection. Um, uh, this patient is ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 negative. Um, uh, so I expect that this patient would, would uh, potentially be offered further uh, adjuvant uh, chemotherapy, but no additional hormonal therapy. Would she receive any other adjuvant treatment to the breast? Uh, yes, she would receive radiation uh, as well. Would this candidate be a can would this patient be a candidate for um, anti-hormonal therapy she is er positive but pr negative uh she, she might be a candidate for uh, hormonal hormonal therapy okay that's it whoa oh boy <laughs> all right let me have it so uh, so again, I, you're, I think you're warming up a little bit so that I, I thought that your, um, I thought that your flow was, um, your flow was better. Uh, you're quicker, um, um, a little bit less, uh, a bit more to the point, uh, in terms of going through that station, I, you certainly hit all the high points. Um, I think, that, you know, that this would, um, yeah, there were no, there, there were no red flags. So you moved through it quickly. You hit all the key uh, decision points. I think just remember, um, on a couple times, I did have to um, kind of rephrase or ask you another question, to, um, and that's okay. They, I think you know, um, in my in my experience, um, they, they would do that. Um, that may be a little bit, um, you know, as, as standardized as it is, it may still be a little bit examiner dependent. Um, the only thing I would kind of comment on from a content point of view is um, two things. One, I think that your answer about how the axilla would be managed was perfect. Um, I still think that on a oral exam, um, the standard of care for this patient would still be axillary lymph node dissection. But I think it's super appropriate to say exactly what you did, which was, you know, this would be discussed in a multidisciplinary tumor board. Um, you know, the axilla needs some additional treatment, whether or not it's axe dissection or, um, you know, targeted axillary radiotherapy um, is, is kind of like the, the absolute perfect answer. Um, and so that was, I thought that was done very well. In terms of adjuvant therapy, um, so she's already received her chemotherapy, her full dose of chemotherapy up front. So her adjuvant therapy, um, and this was not a make or break question, um, you know, would be obviously whole breast um whole breast radiation, uh, she likely would receive axillary radiotherapy, and then she would receive hormonal, uh, anti-hormonal therapy 
probably as tamoxifen transitioning to an AI because she's perimenopausal. But, you know, that, that, that's kind of nuanced stuff. But I think uh, that, you know, that that certainly wasn't the like surgical red flag decision making point in this station. So. All right. So a 38 year old RCMP officer was shot in the abdomen at close range while doing a routine traffic stop. You're on call and are notified that the patient is five minutes from the hospital, tachycardic and hypotensive. What will you do before the patient arrives in the emergency department? So I would uh, uh, do a, uh, ask the emergency department to put out a level one call out. This would mobilize the, the emergency department team, including nurses, respiratory therapists, another emerge uh, physician, um, as well as prepare the uh, as as well as I would prepare the trauma bay, uh, having two ch- two ch- chest tube trays available, uh, and I would uh, uh, assign roles prior to the uh, patient arriving in the emergency department. I would also uh, um, alert the blood bank that we might need uh, blood. Okay, so the patient arrives. He's GCS fifteen, talking and moaning in pain. His heart rate is 120, blood pressure 90 over 45. There is a two centimeter hole in the epigastrium and a one centimeter hole in the posterior right flank. There is bleeding and a bullet hole at the left elbow. What is your initial management? Uh, so I would, um, uh, complete, I would do my primary survey. So the airway is patent. Um, uh, I would put the patient on oxygen. I would put the patient on monitors. I would start the patient uh, on, uh, uh, I, I would call for a massive transfusion protocol. I would establish good IV access. Um, I would uh, inspect the patient from head to toe to ensure that there were no other um, bullet wounds or injuries besides the ones that I've seen. Um, and I would uh, uh, get obtain a uh, chest x-ray and a pelvic x-ray uh, as well yeah that's what I would do and as, as well as I would do a uh, abdominal fast and uh, pericardial fast okay. so the chest x-ray is normal the abdominal x-ray and pelvic x-ray show that there is free air in the abdomen no metal fragments are seen The vital signs are the same. Heart rate is 120, blood pressure 90 over 45. What is your next step in management? Um, So this patient um, needs to go to the operating room. Um, So I would uh, call up to the OR and book this as a um, E0 trauma laparotomy. I would would mobilize the team. I would also ask for... Uh, the patient to be started given some uh, started on some uh, uh, or be given uh, transexamic acid. Okay, so the patient is brought to the OR for an emergency trauma laparotomy. You identify a transverse colon injury with feculent contamination, a transverse colon mesenteric injury with profuse bleeding, distal pancreatic injury. The patient's heart rate is 110, blood pressure is 90 over 50 after two units of packed red blood cells. In the OR now, how will you manage this case? And uh, otherwise, uh, do we have any information about the patient's physiology, um, such as from their ABG, uh, as well as if they're on any pressors or any other? No. No extra information. Okay. Um, so this this patient is sick but uh but stable um i would uh uh control um the bleeding first by uh quickly resecting that uh, portion of the uh transverse colon and stapling off the ends i would inspect the pancreatic injury given that this patient is a is a stable complete a the uh, uh distal pancreatectomy and uh, and then uh, ask the, the uh, anesthetist if the patient remains stable as to whether I can complete my uh, reconstruction in terms of the colon. So you perform a segmental transverse colectomy. This is left in discontinuity. A drain is left adjacent to the pancreatic injury. A temporary abdominal closure is placed and the patient is brought to the ICU. 
the patient is stabilized in the ICU and brought back to the OR 24 hours later. At this time, the colon appears healthy. There is no further bleeding and no other injuries are identified. The distal pancreas appears contused. How will you manage this case? I would complete a, an extended uh, right hemicolectomy uh, with a primary anastomosis uh, to complete my resection for the um, uh, for the colon injury. Um, I would examine the pancreas closely to see if there is any involvement uh, of the uh, pancreatic uh, duct. If there does not appear to be any uh, evidence of a pancreatic duct disruption, I would leave wide drainage and, uh, and leave the uh, pancreas um, as is. Um, uh, I would also ask a HPB colleague to potentially ultrasound the uh, pancreatic duct uh, to ensure that there's no pancreatic duct. Uh... Uh, so the patient stabilizes over the next few days. His elbow is pinned three to four days later by ortho. He develops a pancreatic leak identified by the drain fluid. His bowels resume their function. He's stable and transferred to the ward on post-op day five. On post-op day seven, the patient suddenly worsens clinically and appears septic with diffuse peritonitis. How will you manage the patient? So uh, this patient needs to be started on antibiotics and resuscitated and taken back to the operating room for a relook laparotomy as I'm concerned for uh, an anastomotic leak. Okay. Get a CT scan that shows free air and an infected hematoma in the pancreatic bed. What do you think is happening and what is your management plan? So, uh, as I said, I'm worried that uh, this, uh, this patient has either missed enteric injury or uh, an anastomotic leak. Uh, I would start this patient on antibiotics and resuscitate them with uh, fluid and then take them uh, back to the operating room for a washout um, and uh, management of, uh, and definitive management of uh, any injuries. Okay, so you bring the patient back to the operating room and you find an anastomotic leak. There is an infected hematoma in the pancreatic bed, but no acute bleeding. How will you manage the anastomotic leak? Uh, this patient will get an end ileostomy and uh, wide drainage uh, of the uh, area of the pancreatic bed if there isn't already um, uh, drains there. Um, otherwise, I would not uh, explore the uh, hematoma or disrupt that. Okay, and what will you do with the colonic stump? Uh, the, the colonic stump I would uh, mature as a uh, mucus fistula. So the patient recovers well, his bowels recover, and he returns to the ward. On post-op day 7 from his take back, so post-op day 14 from the initial trauma, the patient crashes on the ward and a code is called. He is brought to the ICU after ROSC. Heart rate is 150, blood pressure 75 over 30, the abdomen is tense. What is your management? Um, so this patient is hypotensive. Um, I would uh, obtain STAT labs in forms of, a form of an ABG um, and, uh, and uh, resuscitate the, the patient with uh, fluids. Um, if the patient was uh, t could tolerate it, I would uh, obtain a CT scan here. Um, uh, but obviously, if the, if the, if the patient was continued to... Um, deteriorate I would uh, take the patient back to the uh, operating room but I would uh, I would obtain the CBC and CT if at all possible. Okay you bring the patient back to the operating room his abdomen is filled with fresh blood this massive bleeding appears to be coming from behind the pancreas the patient is very unstable what is the likely source of this bleed and what is your management? So I would be uh, uh, concerned that this is this uh, represents an erosion of the pancreatic leak into uh, likely the splenic artery or uh, one of the uh, uh, post uh, pancreatic blood vessels but most likely the splenic artery 
um, I would uh, uh, obtain exposure to the uh, splenic artery, artery uh, approximately and distally, uh, which would likely involve doing a, a distal pancreatectomy um, and, and, uh, and uh, tie off the uh, splenic artery. Oh boy. So trauma ones are, are definitely like a little bit harder just mentally, at least for me, because I feel like like a trauma in real life is really fast paced. And so then on the exam, like you have that kind of like sympathetic response in your body as if it's a real trauma, but it's still just an oral exam. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, I think, so the beginning was really great, like preparing the emergency department, you hit all of the points there. Uh, once the patient arrives and uh, they're asking your initial management. So for that exam, you just want to have your trauma spiel. Like you just have it like ready to roll off your tongue. You know, I'll approach this patient in standard ATLS fashion with my primary survey, A, B, C, D, E. I'll have blah, blah, blah. You know, you just want to list it all off. It's, it's, it's just uh, a spiel that should fall out of your mouth. Um, so yours was just a little bit disorganized um, and wasn't rehearsed. So that's just a matter of practice. Um, otherwise, I think your management was good. Uh, when you were in the OR for the first time, I think you were a little bit thrown off about like how like you ultimately you did all the right things. Um, but again, in a trauma situation where there's multiple injuries, like your first thing is always manage the bleeding. Uh, you mentioned communication with anesthesia, which is great. Uh, and then just take each injury one at a time. You know, obviously in the real life situation, you're, you're not able to necessarily be super methodical, like one, two, three, four. You know, there's multiple hands in the belly, et cetera. But in the exam situation, you, you know, you, you can't do everything all at once. So just take each injury one at a time. So for the bleeding, I'll do this. For the colonic injury, I'll do this. So these are just like ways to be a little less, less stressed in the face of the trauma question. Um, but yeah, otherwise I thought like your management was really good. You know, again, if it's, if the next slide isn't exactly what you would have done, that's totally fine. It happens all the time. You just roll with it. Um, and yeah, no, no specific concerns. I thought that was good. Yeah. I was a bit thrown off because uh, to me, like the uh, pH and the, like not just the heart rate and the blood pressure would have dictated what I did. So I wasn't, I was, uh, you know, like I was in two minds as to, uh, what I would do. Like I would probably do the, do the resection, stop the bleeding and then recoup and see where I was at. Cause if, if the patient was stable, I probably would just do everything, all the definitive stuff right off the bat. But, uh, but cert certainly, I, you know, I, I take your point about being systematic in, in just describing it. And you might not always have all that information, right? Like there's right. a lot of times where the slide is not going to have the information and the examiner is not going to provide it. Like if it's not on the slide, it's not there. No. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Amir. You, you know, I can, I can, <laughs> knowing you well, I'm sitting here wa watching you answer this question. Wh what you're thinking, I'm sure, is, well, we don't treat gunshots based on ATLS dogma, right? We, in fact, we treat them the opposite. C comes before A, for example. And then, as you pointed out, your progression and your cadence and your pathway in that case depends entirely on that first and probably second ABG. But, you know, Caitlin's point's important too. The examiners, that might not be their area. The person that wrote the question may not understand that nuance and may may take you in a totally different direction. So you have to be malleable like you were in terms of putting you in a different place. And I suspect that this question was probably written to show actually poor management because there was two obviously subsequent complications that peaked to the level you had to take them back to the operating theater. I mean, that's a, that's an absolute disaster of a, of a man, of a case and of management up front, right? It's very poor. So they probably want you to talk about complications and reacting to them and recognizing them. You did great. Okay. Thank you guys again for the for the uh, feedback. This is a 52-year-old male with a referral uh, from his family physician concerning a new perianal lesion, non-healing times six months. Uh, on exam, the lesion is as shown. 
What is your differential diagnosis? Okay, so um, I would be worried about benign and malignant causes of this lesion. Certainly, I'd be concerned here about this patient having a squamous cell carcinoma. Um, uh, this patient could have a condyloma acuminatum. This patient could have a Bushke Lowenstein tumor. Um, uh, benign causes, I suppose, could be skin tags, um, uh, inflammatory changes um, from uh, chronic uh, Crohn's proctitis. Uh, uh, that would be my main differential. Uh, sorry, and I, su I suppose a, a long-standing uh, infection as well in terms of a perineal abscess could uh, theoretically look like this. Okay. Past medical history, uh, patient is otherwise healthy, no comorbidities. Uh, social history, uh, he works as an accountant, lives with his male partner, 15-pack uh, year uh, smoking history, occasional alcohol use, uh, no medications, no known drug allergies, on exam, lesion is about four centimeters in diameter, ulcerated, firm. Um, there's no obvious involvement into the anal canal. Um, it is, there's also, though, a firm palpable lymph node in the right groin. The remainder of the exam uh, is unremarkable. Uh, what is the next step? I would uh, uh, per perform an examination under anesthesia for this patient to get biopsies um, of this lesion as well as uh, perform a full anoscopy. Um, I would also obtain a, uh, a FNA of the palpable lymph node <coughs> in the right groin. So the biopsy of the node in the perianal lesion comes back as a poorly differentiated uh, squamous cell carcinoma. What further investigations would you order? So um, I would stage this patient. So I would obtain a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis looking for metastatic disease. I would also obtain an MRI of the pelvis um, uh, to characterize uh, the uh, local involvement of this, uh, of this lesion. Uh, I would obtain baseline blood work such as the CTC, the CBC lights and creatinine and liver enzymes. Um, any additional investigations? No, sorry, no, no further investigations. So you order a CT chest abdopelvis. Uh, there's no evidence of distant uh, metastases, um, but they do see the suspicious node uh, in the right uh, groin as well as a suspicious node in the mesorectum. Um, MRI of the pelvis lesion um, involves the external sphincter, um, but no other adjacent organs. The PET scan, uh, there is... FDG avidity at the primary and in the right inguinal node, uh, and the mesorectal node is mildly avid. Patient is also HIV negative. What is the T stage of this um, squamous cell carcinoma? Uh, just remind me how big it was. Four centimeters. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> this is sorry. This is a T four um, lesion. Okay. So what are the components of the NIGRO protocol or non-operative management of anal canal squamous cell carcinoma? So NIGRO protocol would involve chemotherapy and radiation. The chemotherapy is mitomycin C and 5-FU, um, and, uh, as well as uh, radiation. Um, the likelihood of a complete clinical response in this scenario is um, uh, approximately... Um, 70 to 80%. Great. So the patient receives a single dose mitomycin followed uh, by a four-day infusion of 5-FU um, and then receives uh, concurrent uh, with that 50 grays uh, over 25, fraction, 25 fractions. Uh, this includes the mesorectum uh, in the inguinal and iliac nodes. When do you want to see the patient back for follow-up? Uh, I'd like to see the patient uh, back for follow-up in uh, six to eight weeks after the completion of their uh, uh, after the com completion of their treatment. 
Okay. Um, so you, you, yes, you see the patient at uh, four and eight weeks after completion of treatment. Regression uh, regression is uh, quite obvious. Um, at 12 weeks, however, there um, appears to be a response. Um, there's still a response, but residual a residual lesion is obvious on exam. What is your next step? I would continue to follow this patient for up to six months with monthly uh, visits and uh, physical examinations um, uh, to see and document that the lesion uh, continues to regress. Excellent. Uh, you see the patient back every four weeks with ongoing response. At six months, uh, he's had a complete clinical response. The lymph node exam is also normal. Repeat uh, staging uh, confirms that. Uh, the PET shows no FDG uptake at the previously added sites. What is the next step in management? So I would I would see this patient um, every six months um, for the next uh, two years, um, followed by every year uh, until we get out to uh, five years with a full um, physical examination as well as um, uh, perianal exam and, and rigid proctoscopy. I would also uh, get a colonoscopy. We follow the patient um, with exam and DRE every three to six months, out for five years, as well as regular endoscopy um, and CT chest out to pelvis. At 15 months, you notice a new uh, palpable right inguinal lymph node. Uh, your perianal um, and uh, anal canal exam uh, is free of disease. What is the management? I would obtain an FNA of this right inguinal a lymph node as well as a PET scan. So the biopsy uh, shows poorly differentiated squamous cell. Um, additional investigations, as you mentioned, uh, CT chest abdo pelvis, uh, no additional disease. PET scan um, uh, is congruent. Um, what is the next step in your management? Uh, I would discuss this patient at a multidisciplinary tumor board meeting. Uh, and consider this patient for a uh, uh, lymph node dissection uh, on the right side. And what are the key components of the consent process for this procedure? Um, so I would explain uh, the risks of the, the procedure. So the, the key steps is explaining the, the procedure itself as well as the alternatives. Um, which is, in this case, would likely be to just watch it. Uh, for the procedure, I would explain that this patient, this risk, uh, there are the, the usual risks in, with any surgery, such as bleeding infection, um, uh, general anesthetic uh, uh, complications. Uh, specifically, uh, uh, here there would be a risk for uh, lymph leak um, uh, and, uh, and, and infection. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, and, and nerve injury, yes. Okay, so that was uh, that was a bit longer. Sorry that that um, sorry that that didn't behave for us. Um, uh, even at the end there, you got a bit of a freebie. Uh, um, so just in terms of feedback, um, I think you. You definitely hit again. Um, there were no there were no red flags, um, like from a you know from a surgical management, from a uh, progression through the station, um, from a management point of view. Um, two quick things: one, um, it is um, the the lesion was four centimeters, so it would be a T two. Um, T four would be you know invading adjacent structures, so you know bladder, bowel, um, involvement of the external sphincter doesn't count. Um, so, but that, that, that was kind of like a bonus point. Um, otherwise, you know, really, uh, the only thing would be in the workup for anything greater than two centimeters. Um, you know, mention getting a PET scan cause they're super pet avid, um, would be the only kind of a, additional piece to the workup. And then again, a bonus point was just, you know, risk factors, uh, for anal canal, uh, squame, you know, uh, uh, 
HIV, right? So he, I kind of gave you, you know, some risk factors. And so just make sure that for everyone you're mentioning that um, HIV status, because if you optimize their HIV status, uh, they have improved outcomes. Um, and so that, that was it though, in terms of feedback. I thought your examinship, you know, was, 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 was spot on, right? I think as you're going through these questions today, you're, you're, you are getting tighter and tighter. And I think that that for me anyways, was something I struggled with during the the exam is that when I started, I had to really practice on not being overly wordy. I think that's kind of like my tendency. And then you just get yourself a, you waste time. And then B, you're going to say something that, you know, isn't relevant or potentially throws you off or the examiner off. So just, you know, you were already doing that, you know, stay tight, stay kind of concise and just get through the station. Um, yeah. And so, and I think that just came with practice uh, and that is less about kind of how, how, you know, it's less about your knowledge base and how you are or how your decision, you know, it's less about your decision-making process and more, unfortunately, just about examinship, which is, you know, probably not the intended um, outcome of, of the oral exam, but, you know, ends up becoming a big part of, of, of you know, performing well on it. Um, absolutely. I, I did want to ask one thing about... Um the PET scan, because that wasn't something that uh, I had come across in studying. Is that something in the NCCN in terms of if you have a big, if you have a um, uh, a big uh, over four centimeters, is that part of uh, NCCN to actually get a PET scan? Um, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. So that, yeah, and again, you, you're that that was not the plus or minus PET scan was, was definitely not going to be like a, like a fail, not fail, right? Like, cause there's going to be some institutional variability, but for sure, you know, given how PET avid it is, um, and the fact that you, you felt kind of regional disease on your exam, um, you know, NCCN would, would, and I think, you know, um, that would still, that would still be quite standard. Yeah. Thanks again, Caitlin and, uh, Greg for, for coming on and doing this. I think people are going to find it uh, really helpful and beneficial. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thanks again.